Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the ESG mini-series on TVP. This week, we're joined by guest Arvind Sanger, who is the founder and managing director of a hedge fund which focuses on sensible energy transition. We also share a mutual friend and former guest, Arjun Murthy. Andrew Lynn and Juan sat down with Arvind to discuss what has changed in the energy and material markets during the 30-plus years of his career, how the uranium market works, uranium's demand and supply impact on nuclear power sector, and finally, nuclear's main challenges, a conversation based on a recent piece on the matter by another podcast guest, Robert Bryce. Enjoy. Arvind Sanger, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm great. Uh, great to see you again. Arvind, where do we find you today? I am physically in Miami today. You were just saying before that the weather seems very nice. We are in gloomy London, so you can brag about it publicly to us. Yeah, well, it's in the 80s and the water is warm. Beach is welcoming <laughs> and uh, nothing to complain about. And if it rains here, it rains for an hour and then it clears up and gets uh, nice again. So this is the time of the year the end of hurricane season, and now we're going to the fall, and the weather here is uh, perfect. Come on down for Halloween, and we'll show you a good time. How was your trip to Japan? It was good. It was, again, extremely hot in the 90s. So it was our original plan was to go in late March 2020, which would have been cherry blossom season. But it was interesting. I mean, everything was very cheap. So the, <laughs> the yen, you know, I've experienced Japan as an expensive country for the first time I experienced it as an inexpensive country. That sounds very nice. Arvind, for those that don't know who you are, could you please provide us with an introduction about yourself? Sure. I've been involved in the energy business as an analyst from 1987, actually 86 as an intern, but since then I've been involved in the energy business as a, on the sell side for 15 years. And then from 2002, I've been an investor. And as an analyst, I did energy and a little bit of shipping as an investor I've done energy shipping and have added the whole metals and mining space for the last 21 years. So, you know, that, that's kind of my career background. You happen to be a good friend of one of our favorite people in the energy sector, a person that knows everything about energy, an expert. We've had him on the podcast twice. And then for a third time, he was actually hosting Andrew Lidon on a mini series that we are running at the moment. Arjun Murthy. Yes, Arjun and I have known each other a long time. In fact, you know, our uh, my youngest, his oldest, were born in the same hospital in adjacent rooms. We bumped into <laughs> each other in the hospital at that time, but we'd known each other. I used to be on the sell side. He used to be on the buy side. I switched to the uh, buy side uh, as an investor. He switched to the sell side when he was at Goldman. So we've known each other kind of, you know, he's been my client. I've been his client. So we've had a long relationship. And now we're just, you know, friends. So we know, uh, we, we've uh, known each other. And uh, in fact, you mentioned having him on your podcast. Uh, we've had him. On our podcast, we do uh, you know a quarterly webinar, and we did one with him uh, a couple of months ago. And I very much enjoy reading because we're in complete agreement on some of the things that he talks about. And we talk about the energy transition challenges and uh, the reason we call our fund Sensible Energy Transition, which is kind of what he's talking about, sense, common sense about energy transition. We're very much simpatico in terms of our uh, in terms of our thought process and the unfortunate mistakes that we think people are making and governments are making and the challenges and the opportunities ahead of them. 
Arvind, you've been very generous in sharing with us your journey. And so, as you mentioned, you were co you've been covering mining and energy, energy sectors for over 30 years, both on the sell side and the buy side. So I need to ask you, what has changed, if at all, over the course of this journey? Well, I think, uh, you know, for the energy business, uh, uh, and I'll come to mining second, but for the energy business, you've had cycles before. And the cycles have usually followed a typical pattern where you get low prices, investment collapses, you get you know demand rebounding, and then the cycle resumes, investment picks up, demand starts to you know uh, goes well until a point where prices get high enough that demand starts to slow down a little bit, and supply comes on at the same time that demand is starting to peak or roll over or or stabilize, and then the supply overwhelms the cycle. That was the nature of cycles that uh, existed, and investors paid for companies that had access to growth. That was the name of the game for, you know, for all the past cycles. What changed when I decided to launch this fund in 21 is that after the disaster of the 2010s, disaster for the energy business in terms of return on capital, After the disaster of the 2012, the shale boom, the only people who made money were the consumers, not the shareholders of the oil companies, not the people who bought the high-yield debt. A lot of uh, you know, uh, companies went bankrupt. Uh, energy companies were the number one issuer of high-yield debt in the 2010s. They were frequent issuers of equity, and they barely earned single, low single-digit return on capital. And therefore, the shareholders, you know, uh, got nothing for it other than bankruptcies amongst the smaller companies and, you know, very little returns amongst the larger ones. What is different this time in the energy business is this belief, A, that you're not going to be rewarded for capital indiscipline. And that has come into, uh, into deep into the mindsets of the shareholders, the managements, the boards, everything, the investors. The incentives for management is no longer about growth, GDP growth, production per share growth, production volume growth, none of those. It's about kind of capital return discipline, capital, capital spending discipline. Anytime a company announces an increase in CapEx in the oil and gas business, uh, the share price goes down. Anytime a company announces an increase in cap, cash return to shareholders, the stock price goes up. So, you know, as their incentives are tried more to stock price performance rather than growth, uh, I think it's becoming clear that uh, the uh, the investors are looking for that. And the other, other very important thing, you know, I don't believe in good intentions lasting by themselves. But the other good thing is this whole belief that we don't know when, but we are close to the top or the peak of the energy demand cycle. I happen to think it'll last a lot longer than people believe. But that is something that no board would be caught dead admitting that they're going to bet on long-dated projects counting on strong prices for a long time. So you have to use a much more conservative price environment in your thought process. So I think what has changed is the supply response is broken. Okay. I have never seen that. The supply response to high prices is fundamentally broken for those two reasons. Investors are no longer willing to fund and discipline growth. And the fear of uh, we are in the last stages of the demand growth makes uh, for great reluctance on investing in uh, you know, new, new projects, new assets, new whatever with an updated uh, return profile. So based on that, What is, in your opinion, the major shortcomings of the climate change narrative that has taken over the world during the last decade? So before I answer that, let me finish uh, the mining side. What happened in the mining side is the mining side boomed, again, has had six cycles. And the last boom in the mining cycle was led by the China growth story. And then the China growth story, you know, uh, we got the 2008-9 financial crisis, And the, China, and the mining companies were same as oil companies. They were great value destroyers because they would all invest. With it. It's a cyclical industry, right? So they, after, after the 2008-2009 financial crisis, China again stimulated for, and, and started to revive the economy. So the spending by the mining companies peaked in 2011-12-13. And what had ended up happening is their shareholders got caught holding the bag because China's you know, kind of revival was not 
really sustained at that level that people hoped was a pre-2008, you know, big boom. It was much more, you know, debt-driven and much less uh, kind of a fast growth in commodity demand. And so the mining companies have also turned more shareholder returns focused, more shareholder friendly. They don't have the same. And then I'll it, it, uh, dovetails to your question. What people are not realizing is that mining investment from current levels, the road to energy transition runs through metals. You need, you know, three to five times as much copper, three times plus as much copper for electric cars and you point on a combustion engine car. You need five times to seven times as much copper for a solar wind farm than you do for, uh, for uh, you know, it, uh, for a thermal power plant. And mining is not a clean project. I, it, it, you know, I, I hear stupid comments like, you know, the Church of England's, I forget the person who manages their, their investment portfolio, saying that we have to be careful as we turn away from energy to mining, that we keep in mind that the mining doesn't do bad just like the energy companies have done bad, okay? Bad in their way. So the thing that is shocking to me is that the assumption that mining is has no side effects. There is going to be earth that is going to be dug up. There is going to be soil that is going to be eroded. There is going to be byproducts. There is going to be you know negative consequences to anything. There is no Pareto-efficient mining that nobody will be worse off. We have to figure out, do we want to save the world by climate change or do we want this utopian perfect world? That's one mistake that energy transition is making. Climate change is that they're assuming that there is this you know, great new world that we can go to where we can all sing Kumbaya and hold hands uh, and dance around a fire and that the world will be saved by switching to this green and what we're not recognizing is that the new green requires a lot of dirty stuff to come out of the earth to make it happen. And, uh, and you know, uh, one of the uh, most common things needed is steel. We make steel from, you know, either uh, metallurgical coal in a blast furnace. So we want to stop investing in coal, but we need steel for making wind turbines, for making everything we need steel, right? Uh, there's not a renewable project that doesn't require steel. Or we make steel from electric arc furnace, which requires cheap electricity around the clock, which comes from, uh, again, either natural gas in the U.S. or it comes from coal in China or whatever. So, you know, so my point is energy transition makes these utopian expectations. And it misses one very important point that to accomplish that energy transition, you're going to need a lot of investment things which are going to be, you know, which include conventional energy. Because the new technologies, you know, require a lot of conventional energy, whether it's wind or solar or what have you. And the other thing that it misses, which is energy fairness. So we did we, we did a chart in our uh, our presentation recently, which shows that if you take, we did we looked at what is the power consumption. We just picked this as a random number because I saw somebody use it. And I thought it was a very cool uh, kind of point to make. A typical side by side refrigerator. Right, you have a large refrigerator which has the, uh, you know, the freezer on one side, the uh, the uh, refrigerator on the other side. A typical side-by-side refrigerator consumes, by we looked at Energy Star, whatever the U.S. government, 699 kilowatt hours per year. That's the average for the. There are 2.2 billion people whose average per capita, and we just took 57 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, in uh, parts of South Asia. And then we took uh, 11 states in India, which is a you know by itself a continent, right? 1.4 billion people. 11 states in India, which fall under that. So these are the poorest states in India. So when you add all that together, that 57 plus 11, you come to 2.2 billion people who consume less electricity, less power for electricity, cooling, heating, air conditioning, refrigeration, driving, all of that combined. They consume less per capita than a typical side-by-side refrigerator. Now, you asked me in energy fairness if they want to aspire for better, then how can they do that if you're trying to make energy more expensive with this energy transition? They, they just want cheap energy. They just, you know, you're not going to go to Africa and find, you know, 
an electric charging network to buy electric cars. The, 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 you know, the electric network you, you need doesn't exist. You first have to have electricity. You have to have, you know, cheap source of energy. So my point is the cheapest available source of energy, which Africa exports to the rest of the world, are oil, coal. These are the sources, uh, natural gas that they have. And that's what they're going to use. And yes, wind and solar are can be part of the solution in remote communities. You can use solar, you can use all of that. They will be part of the solution. But it can't be this, you know, India is a great example. They built 50 gigawatts of solar because solar was, quote, unquote, very cheap. And now what they're finding out is that it's 7 o'clock in the evening when people get home, turn on their conditioners and their televisions and want to charge their cell phone. Suddenly, there's a shortage of power. So what is the solution? They're adding 20 gigawatts of new thermal power plants with coal because they have no choice because it's much cheaper than either gas, which is better for the environment, or uh, solar with batteries, which is much more expensive. So at the end of the day, cheap power wins over saving the world because poor people in these countries can't afford the luxury of saving the world when they're trying to you know, earn a living and, and eke out uh, you know, better life for themselves. So that's, that's the challenge that I think the energy transition folks who are sitting in these, you know, rich countries, you know, sipping their lattes, Starbucks or whatever their favorite shop is, and then imagining, you know, and then nobody's giving up their sub-zeros. Nobody's giving up. I don't see anybody giving up their sub-zeros or their big refrigerators, but they want to lecture everybody else on how to save the world. So I think this whole, uh, you know, climate change narrative, yes, I, I'm not a climate denier, but I think we have to look at sensible solutions. We have to look at, at carbon sequestration. We have to look at other transition technologies rather than try to pretend that, you know, California just sued the oil companies for lying to their citizens about the dangers of climate change. So generative AI uses five times as much compute power as common simple AI that you use in the traditional Google search versus going to chat GPT to search. So are they going to ban generative AI? Are the oil companies fooling them to use generative AI? I use an Apple Watch. It requires electricity. I could have a wind-up watch. Are they going to ban Apple Watches? I mean, the point is that we are doing things which are more power-hungry. In our economic progress in California, is the goddamn forefront of it. And yet they want to pretend that, you know, the oil companies are evil because they provided energy to, to sustain our lifestyle. So I think that, you know, it gets me mad sometimes when I hear some of these holier-than-thou nonsense coming from, uh, you know, I want I, I, I use stronger words, but I'm not sure what I'm allowed to use or not use in your podcast. But I just think it's real fantasy and real nonsense. Just on that oil or energy compared to mining, there's kind of an interesting difference, I think, in that the... The oil and gas companies, as you said, nobody wants them to spend any more money, like right, rightly or wrongly. They get rewarded for giving it back to you. And as you said, compared to the last decade, that, that's a good thing. But the mining companies have also found that capital discipline. But the incentives are structured slightly differently for them because people are actually wanting them to invest. And as you say, we need to extract those minerals. So what confidence do you have that they'll retain the, the discipline in balancing the returns to shareholders that they've that they've started to do with sensible capital projects and that we don't just return to the old cycle of, you know, capital invested over long periods yielding low capital returns over long periods. Well, eventually the mining companies will f*** up. I'll, 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 I'll uh, you know, use the more blunt term now because, because you know, that, that is the nature of uh, investing in cyclical industries. But we're so early in the cycle and the demands are so low. And, and here's the point. 45% of the world's copper comes from Latin America. Latin America is going hard left in terms of wanting, you know, whether it's Peru, which is Peru produces as much mined copper as Saudi Arabia produces oil. Nobody talks about Peru when we talk about copper, but we should be thinking about it. And Peru's got, you know, uh, one Marxist president who was uh, uh, impeached. There's been, you know, 50 people killed in government shootings uh, uh, on protests uh, late last year. And there's local protests by local communities because they want more redistribution. 
they want more fairness. The, some of the largest lithium reserves in the world come in Chile. Chile's current president has said, who's also you know not quite a Marxist but uh, hard left, has said that uh, he wants a national champion to manage the development of the lithium resources. Well, Latin America is full of national champions who've done a tremendous job of creating shortages, whether it is in Venezuela or in Pemex in Mexico, whoever. So, you know, if Chile is going to go that route, uh, uh, then, you know, it can only mean so. I had a mining company, Canadian mining company that had presence in Chile tell me that the safest place to put new long-term projects to work in copper without having to worry about terms changing on you was the Democratic Republic of Congo. My point is, if that's where we are dependent on for our safe, if that's our safety, then I think the mining industry is probably going to be forced into capital discipline, whether they like it or not, because of the challenges they're facing, Latin America being one you know, brilliant example of break on new investment allowed because there's more of a leftist redistribution philosophy. And so I think, yes, eventually we will get, but the reality is, you know, we need so much lithium, we need so much rare earths, we need so much, you know, and governments are doing stupid things. All this industrial policy of everybody is trying to outbeggar everybody else to, you know, so we've got in the U.S. you had this Inflation Reduction Act, which was basically, you know, Joe Manchin's baby, a senator from West Virginia. He had two projects that he wanted approval on or two bills. One was the one which was the inflation, what became called the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which provides all these incentives for onshoring all these projects. And the second was fast-tracking approval of projects, both oil and gas and renewable. That did not, that never, that second bill never passed. So here's the problem you have. You can give tax incentives for somebody to locate a rare earth processing facility in the U.S. But the reason we shut down a lot of the processing industries, downstream chemical industries in the U.S. and outsources to China, the dirty little secret is we were happy for them to screw up their environment while we didn't have to do ours. Now we have the problem that we give tax incentives, but how are we going to get approvals from local communities saying, in my backyard? So, you know, there will be a few, but it's going to be much more challenging and so I think that, yes, the mining industry needs to invest. We need significantly more investments. But I think there are natural breaks which will cause the cycle to last a lot longer than people realize. Uh, and, you know, we love uranium, and I'll come to that later in our conversation. But, I mean, the same challenge, a lot of these sectors, we also have the problem in copper. Our copper grades are falling significantly. And therefore, new copper mines are much less productive, and the amount of copper needed for energy transition is, frankly, I doubt we have it available. We may not be able to meet the goals of all the wind and solar, you know, that we want with the copper that we're going to, you know, we're going to have to look in new places because, you know, Chile, Peru, and uh, other Latin American countries, and even Congo and whatever, I'm not sure if there's uh, enough, uh, you know, mine copper available. We'll have to invest a heck of a lot, uh, and then... Hopefully, we will find enough to uh, to do it. But but I think uh, the challenge is, is there is if if we discovered something like a shale oil equivalent in some of these metals, then the cycle would be over much quicker. But so far, there doesn't seem to be any signs of that kind of uh, you know breakthrough technology on mining coming through that will cause us to find huge resources somewhere. Perfect. Thank you. I'm going to change tax a little bit here, and I want to move on to the topic of nuclear, which you just briefly mentioned. But I was wondering if before that, maybe you could explain to our audience, how does the uranium market works? Well, it's complicated even for me sometimes to follow because, you know, you get the mined uranium U308 that you kind of produce at the mine when you, you know, create it, then you send it to... Uh, you know, uh, to facilities to get it processed at multiple stages before you get the processed uranium that can be converted into the use, usable uranium, the rods that are used as fuel in a nuclear reactor. So there are many uh, uh, downstream processing uh, steps before you could get there. And, you know, you've heard of the centrifuges that we talk about when we talk about Iran's nuclear program and all that, but those centrifuges are required to purify the uranium enough to be able to get it into a form which can then be used, in a, you know. And so one of the problems is that, uh, you know, by various best estimates, about 25 
percent of Western enriched uranium, which is used to make the fuel rods, is processed in Russia. And so, one of the problems we have since uh, you know since uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that people are trying to figure out how to reduce that dependence. So that's one new wrinkle that has come up. I started at the back end on the processing side, but we don't talk about that, but that's one of the challenges. But the real problem is mined uranium. Mined uranium is something that has not been invested in because, you know, prices got up to $140 per pound in 2006-07 and then collapsed into the $20 per pound in 2020, in the 25, 20, 30, uh, that we've recovered gradually. And only in the last two or three months, we've gone vertically up or significantly up. We're now back to $65 per pound. We know, we talked to a lot of uh, uh, you know, uh, uranium mining companies, and uh, there are, you know, the cost structure of the new nuclear that uranium that we need is in the for a lot of the incremental supply long-term to come on that will be needed. And this is talking about the, I started the uranium end because you asked me about uranium, but I want to come back to nuclear because the fundamental, this is the supply side. Let's talk about the demand side. The demand side, you know, one of the leaders in ESG and environmental stupidity, which even makes California look sensible by comparison is Europe. So Europe in... I forget if it was in 2019 or 2020, classified coal, oil, gas, and nuclear as environmentally bad to be avoided going forward, and only wind and solar and hydro were the green sources, and maybe biofuels and a few others, but these were the main ones. Then in 21, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which happened in 22, in 21, uh, you had Natural gas prices in December of 21 get to $60 per MMBQ in Europe, which is equivalent of $360 per barrel of oil, which was caused by, not by any disruption in Russian supply, but by cold winter, deficient rainfall, which means less hydro, cold winter the prior year, and you had deficient wind blowing. People don't talk about it, but wind doesn't blow the same amount every year. Wind blew less that year, and so you had deficient wind output. And wind was a major source of, you know, uh, renewable uh, power in uh, in uh, Europe. And so you had, when that happened, Europe panicked and it had this kind of half-break common sense, which was that they decided to reclassify natural gas as a transition fuel through 2030 and nuclear as a transition fuel through 2040. Now, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the Greens in Germany insisted that they would shut the nukes, the remaining nukes, but they would allow coal to be burned, which is a funny how Greens came to be called Greens because the Green Movement in Germany was actually not a Green uh, in, the, in the current sense of Green. It was Green in the sense of being anti-nuclear. But the French forced the issue, and a couple of months back, we had Europe reclassify nuclear all the way from being in the same bucket as coal two years ago. In 21 summer, it was in the same bucket as coal. Till 21 December, it was the same bucket as coal. Today, it's in the same bucket as wind and solar. That was the fastest turn I have ever seen of something go from one extreme to the other. So what I want to say is that people are now recognizing that nuclear is the only baseload green source of power possible. And that's one thing people don't talk about, baseload. Baseload is power that's available 24 by 7, and that can only be coal, gas, or nuclear, or hydro to the extent when there's enough rainfall. It can be baseload, but not uh, uh, not wind and solar. So the, the reason why I ask you if you could please explain to us how the uranium market works is because for many years, many people have been calling a structural deficit in the uranium market in terms of demand versus supply, with the demand only growing, you will correct me if I'm wrong, you, you are the expert, 2.5% a year maybe with the new reactors or the new power plants coming into uh, life, and then supply being way ahead of that. But somehow the gap is always covered. And I think that one of the problems that people have with uranium is that it's not a very transparent market. You cannot really see production and demand the same way that you 
see it in many other commodities. Yes, no, that's a great point. And so I would say that uh, part of the thing is, yes, uh, nuclear bulls have cried uh, wolf too often. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, a couple of years back during the meme uh, stock frenzy, uranium got into that same kind of bandwagon. There were a lot of people who jumped on the uranium bandwagon and there was a sprocked trust that was, uh, you know, that was became popular amongst the meme crowd. And bet was that the sprocked, a trust would buy up physical uranium because every time investors got in a trader premium, they would issue more shares, they would buy more uranium. And it was a one-way street. This was not an ETF where, you know, when the demand went away, they, they could uh, uh, destroy the, some of the shares and they would sell the uranium back into the market. It was only supposed to be a one-way street. So that became kind of the frenzy that this was going to be the solution. But the reality is that uh, that you had supply that was coming from Japan, because Japan had these nukes that were largely shut down almost uh, its entire nuclear fleet after the Fukushima disaster in 2011. And so there was uh, still some you know, uranium reserves that they were slowly selling into the market. And so some of the Japanese utilities ran down their uh, nuclear fuel. There was a number of plants in Germany shutting down. They were releasing their inventory. This was not taken into account that as those plants were shutting down, the inventory was, you know, as they were running down the inventory, that was less demand for other from them for primary uranium. Same thing around the world that as plants were shutting down, that was reducing demand because they were eating into their inventory. So there was a lot of inventory and some of the utilities sold their inventory forward. So there was a lot of inventory depletion done between Japan shutting down nuclear plants and even around the world, other places people ran on the inventory. So the only one that was doing the smart thing was China was quietly buying uranium. It was building plants like crazy and it was buying uranium. What has changed is now we are at the point where nobody's shutting down plants. If anything, the Japanese are restarting plants. They've just started restarted one or two, and they're planning to restart more because they're having really hot summers, and there's all kinds of, I would just, as you asked earlier in Japan, and they're having you know all kinds of challenges with keeping their, uh, you know, uh, telling their citizens to sit in, you know, 25, 26 degrees Celsius, during the day to make sure that there are no brownouts and blackouts. That's not acceptable. So the Japanese public is not supporting restarting of nukes. Uh, my poster child for stupid you know, energy policy in the U.S., California, just decided to extend the life of Diablo Canyon a few months ago. This was their major uh, nuclear power plant, which was supposed to shut down in 25. They've extended the life. So what is now happening is Diablo Canyon had to come into the market. They had started depleting the inventory. And now they came into the market to buy, and they, you know, one day prices jumped uh, by five percent when they showed up. What is happening is that the recent price move, price uh, uh, price move, is not being driven by the two major, you know, sources of speculative demand that have driven in the past. One is yellow cake, which is listed in London, and the other one is uh, Sprott, which is listed in Canada. They have been largely out of the market. There have been a few other financial speculators getting in, but we are seeing the term market which is the utilities now starting to slowly recognize that they need you. So France is extending the life of its nuclear plants. UK is talking about extending the life. Belgium just announced a couple of months they're extending the life of their nuclear plants that are uh, retiring in 25. So as you're seeing these life extensions, you're certainly turning those who were depleting inventory to becoming re-emerging from being kind of negative to being a positive. So the demand, the primary demand, the supply... Uh, from primary mining hasn't changed much. It's the secondary supply that is going from being a source of supply to being a source of demand suddenly as these life extensions are taking place. And of course, China has been always a source, but this is what has changed at the margin dramatically. And then you have you know new technologies like small modular reactors, but that will take a few years to play out. That will take you know maybe five years the earliest, or maybe four or five years, before we start to see building of inventories for the start of nuclear plants later in the decade, right, 28, 29. So that will come later. You know, China's demand is continuing. India is doing a little bit. Korea is doing a little bit. But but the big, uh, the big missing piece, which was plants shutting down, is suddenly turning into plant life extensions. And that's that, to me, has been the switch that has really turned the uranium market from a 
you know, what seemed like an apparent surplus to an obvious deficit uh, because the mine supply, you know, clearly, and, and the mine supply is having challenges growing. Uh, you had Cameco just announce uh, uh, they were restarting a mine uh, and that uh, mine is disappointing and the existing mine is disappointing. So their their production expectations are, are, are not being met. Kazakhstan, which has been a major, you know, uh, which has been a major source of uh, uranium through Kazakhstan, uh, is having challenges with their supply. And then, as I told you, people are trying to reduce their dependence on Russia. And what that means is that, you know, when you do this, uh, uh, you know, uh, this enrichment of uranium, uh, you can. There's a concept called overfeeding or underfeeding. You either put less uranium and you do more enriching. Or you put more uranium, you do less enriching. So if you're trying to reduce dependence on Russian enriching, we have shortage of enrichment capacity, which means you have to overfeed to get the same output of uh, you know uranium concentrate needed for uh, uh, for your uh, power plant. So therefore, there are three or four factors which have all suddenly come together, and what is now driving the market is utility demand along with a little bit of speculation, but it's really utility demand that is turned. So that's why the market has gone, in my opinion, from a deficit, from a surplus to a deficit. We'll stick with nuclear. And there was an article recently written by another former guest of the podcast, Robert Bryce, who said in his view, the main challenges for the nuclear industry were, were threefold, one of capital, one of fuel, and one of regulation. You've just talked about fuel a little bit. Do you, do you agree with that? that trio? And would you add any to the the list of those constraints that the industry is under? Well, I think uh, I would uh, also talk about, you know, cost overruns, right? The, the, the reality is that the industry has a terrible track record of time and cost management, you know, and, and that maybe mainly, maybe it's partly tied to regulation. But, you know, the reality is that the reason I, that SMRs are so interesting is because there are literally hundreds of SMRs around the world which are working on all nuclear submarines, small modular reactors, and they've never had a nuclear accident on submarines. And the design is much more, you know, uh, uh, much safer. And so I'm hoping that the regulation kind of recognizes, you know, I think Poland is talking about, I forget if it's Poland or Czech, Czech Republic is talking about building green steel by putting an SMR next to a steel plant which is an interesting idea, you know, much more sensible than uh, green steel trying to get hydrogen from somewhere. But, you know, these are the kind of things. So if regulation kind of recognizes some of these uh, opportunities, then I think, you know, SMRs could also solve the cost problem. They're somewhat simpler to make because you make build them modular and then you, you know, don't build it on site and with all the extra costs and overruns and everything that goes into it. So I think the managing the project management and the way that the nuclear reactors are built has been a big impediment in terms of cost and time delays. And if they can get the modular part correct, that'll help. I think the capital is something that is going to require, again, you know, to solve the cost problem. And to be able to, you know, uh, therefore uh, assure the returns for investors so that they're not left holding the bag with those significant costs uh, overrun. So I think we're not there yet. There are a few demonstration plants that are being built. And if we see success in those, you know, Bill Gates is involved with one uh, uh, in the U.S. and uh, I believe it's in Wyoming. But, you know, if we get a couple of these, uh, if we get these early successes, then the capital will follow. But these SMRs need to prove themselves. Right, that they do deliver on cost and on reasonably on time. Nothing in life is ever completely on time, but generally reasonably on time. Not the kind of two x the time that a lot of nuclear projects have taken in the last few years. Uh, and so, if you can get those, those will solve it. And then, I think the biggest fuel problem is going to be fuel. I think the biggest problem is going to be fuel. And I'm hoping that uh, you know that the prices provide enough incentive that people start uh, you know. Uh, fast-tracking projects, but I think uh, part of the challenges of the utility industry is not necessarily, you know, the most, uh, there is no clear price signal that they listen to that gets them to panic, but I think the nuclear industry has been used to this, the uranium suppliers trying wolf so often that they've kind of, uh, you know, assume that they'll always be there. And I think one of the biggest biggest challenges, I think, in the coming decade could be that if everything else comes together, regulation costs issues because of SMRs start to get a little more under control and the capital gets attractive, where's the fuel going to come from? That's going to be the challenge too. And I think uh, that's going to require a lot of investment. And I think it's 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 not a, it's not a straight line, but that's my problem. 
all of these green parts of gold at the end of the rainbow, and nuclear is a part of green part of gold at the end of the rainbow, are going to be more challenging and take longer. And therefore, the need for fossil fuels, even if it's from coal to gas, is going to last for a lot longer than people realize. You know, maybe, you know, I did a podcast or a, a webinar with uh, with uh, the head of MIT's energy initiative back in, uh, you know, earlier this year. And we were talking about one of the companies that has come out of uh, MIT's, another one that has come out of Oxford, which are working on nuclear fusion, and they've made some great advances. And that doesn't require uranium, and that uh, you know would solve all of our problems if it worked. But his point, and this is an academic giving you the optimistic case, is that the first commercial plant, if nuclear fusion, if everything goes as they hope, would be ready by 2035. So my point is that we've got a long ways from where if nuclear fusion does work, where it'll start to show that it works and then it'll take you know, 2040 before we have you know, more than one demonstration plant in the UK and one in the US. Uh, and that's going to take a long time. And, and so therefore, we have to look at all these technologies and recognize that none of these have a straight path, including nuclear, unfortunately, because of uh, you know, the challenges are not uh, one but many. That's one of the things I, I worry about, the works against nuclear i guess is not is time and not in terms of overrun or you know relative time but that absolute period of time because um, people seem to be in a hurry to to solve these problems and and maybe that's right up to a point but to put a new you know if you put a new model of a traditional reactor in that's going to take five to ten years maybe and maybe we're, ten, 10 to 15 years yeah. uh, conventional <laughs> Old style nuclear, yeah. I was I was trying to be optimistic, but <laughs> SMRs um, may take five years. Yeah, and but then a more a more than a period of roll inevitable period of, of rollout and testing and so on before they can make a big contribution. So, do you have any thoughts on that? Just the extent to which just the the fact that it will take ten to fifteen years means that nuclear gets put to the back of the queue when competing against wind farms, which can be be knocked up in two years. Yeah, well, but that's why SMRs are so important because SMRs can be done in five to seven years, right? So the, the real hope for nuclear is not going to be conventional nuclear plants. It's going to be SMRs. And that, I think, is an important point without which I don't think nuclear is a viable, you know, kind of a contender. Uh, but I think people are realizing at the end of the day, do we, we do need a green baseload or we need some, you know, magical new technology to uh, to help uh you know, uh, with the intermittency of wind and solar, right? Uh, if wind doesn't blow for several months as much as expected, there is no storage technology that can compensate for that. With solar, you can still do it that, you know, you can have some batteries, but, you know, we need batteries for cars, we need batteries for everything. You know, it's just, it's just. Uh, I think uh, eventually, unfortunately, we're going to keep coming back to natural gas as, as a source uh, that is, you know, going to be less harmful than coal, but we are, we are right now, you know, discouraging investment in a lot of these things. But yeah, I think uh, that's one that we think would be very interesting. Is perception about nuclear changing or that's just uh, the way that we're reading it here in London? I think the perception is changing. I mean, but again, it's not widespread yet, but I was in Japan and Japan now is accepting that there is a political push to restart the nukes, I would not have expected that five years ago. So there seems to be a public now, all public polling shows that there's strong support, majority support for restarting nukes. California extending its nuclear, you know, life of its nuclear power plant. So clearly, you know, when you're seeing these examples, it's clear that, you know, uh, that public support is recognizing that, you know, uh, the intermittency, the instability of the grid that you've seen in California, all the other things are causing them to, you know, so people are recognizing that when you have to, you know, sit in, sit in sweltering temperatures or you have brownouts and blackouts being threatened every day, you can live with the, you know, fears, the uh, rational or irrational, in most cases, irrational fears of nuclear, people can live with that. So I think people are recognizing, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's unfair to call it, but it's the lesser of the evil in terms of all the alternatives in front of us. So I think uh, in that sense, I do believe public opinion is changing. I don't know, you tell me, in, uh, in Europe, uh, now that they've reclassified as green, were the politicians getting ahead of the public or 
is the public now recognizing, you know, with uh, with the energy crisis after the Russian invasion that, uh, and and the fact that you know a green car doesn't work by itself is that recognition a broad based or at least in the policymakers it seems to be coming to uh, you know to to the fore. I guess we see less sign of that in Europe outside of the countries that have already embraced nuclear historically. So, as you mentioned, France and Belgium. In the UK, there have been promising signs for a long time, but very, very slow progress, to be honest. So I retain some optimism that we'll, um, Rolls-Royce here domestically are, are looking into to the smaller modular reactors as well, and there's government support for that. So I retain some optimism that we'll do, do something sensible at some point, but it's... If California can do it, I'm sure UK can do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty low bar to beat. <laughs> Arvin, I had the pleasure of meeting you during the summer. And during that meeting, you said something that I thought was very insightful. You mentioned that batteries are a substitute for the fuel tank, not for oil. And hydrogen is a substitute for batteries, not for oil oil or gas. Can you please elaborate on that and explain why this is so important? Well, uh, I mean, I think people think of, uh, of, uh, of you know, electric cars as, as solving our environmental problem. But the reality is that, you know, uh, uh, batteries are just a store of energy, right? Just like a fuel tank. You have to, you know, uh, you have to plug in your car. And if your source in China you know, uh, 30% of the cars sold today are EVs. So in a sense, yes, the environmental, you know, environmentalists have you believe that they're doing a great job saving the environment. But 65% of their power is generated from fossil fuels, mostly coal, 65, 70%. Uh, I think it's more like 70% if you include coal and gas. So, so at the end of the day, you switch from burning oil locally to burning coal centrally. Maybe there is some small efficiency gain, but I'm not sure from a CO2 standpoint, you've really solved that much. So, you know, you need the grid to get green all of a sudden uh, to, to do that. Uh, and so, therefore, the reality is that uh, that batteries are not, you know, uh, a solution by themselves. They're just a way to transfer the problem from one place to the other, and you have to solve the problem at the electric grid. So there's often a confusion that, you know, by selling electric cars, you've solved the problem. You haven't. And 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 the other thing was that people don't recognize is that if I go to plug in my car, and if electric car sales go up a lot, the challenge for the local grid is that it creates huge overload. So we're going to have to invest. You know, I was talking earlier about our needs for electric car copper. We're going to have to invest in copper to rejigger the grid because suddenly you're switching from where your you know oil was being distributed from you know oil tankers taking it to uh, gas stations as we uh, say or petrol pumps as we call it in the UK and then you from there you fill it uh, fill up your you know fuel tank to where everything has to come through the grid and that means that the grids are need going to need significant upgrades and 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 all of that so you know, we have to just remember that there are many steps involved in this, which is not just, you know, we just switch to electric car. So all our problems are solved. It creates new problems that we have to solve. In addition to obviously getting all the, you know, lithium or whatever the source, cobalt and all the other things that are needed. The other part is hydrogen. Hydrogen is is really, in my opinion, uh, a fool's goal if people believe it as a source of energy. You know, uh, I, I'm an engineer by background, but I don't think you need an engineering degree to remember the first law of thermodynamics, which is a law of conservation of energy. The way that we make green hydrogen is by cracking H2O into H2NO. That's what's called in chemistry an endothermic reaction. We have to supply power energy to make that separation. Then we have to transport the hydrogen to a place where we can burn it in some industrial process to make what? H2O again. So you started from H2O, you ended with H2O. There is no way in in humanity or in earth or in nature that the first law of thermodynamics can't hold. So you cannot generate energy from that. It's not a source of energy. When you dig 
coal or oil or gas drill, trick, whatever, from the ground. Nature has done through millions of years where uh, for every unit of energy you expend to, pr- to produce it, refine it, transport it, whatever, you end up getting 10 to 15 units of energy out of it. Hydrogen for every unit of energy you put in with some energy loss in the endothermic reaction to split the water molecule, some energy loss in transporting the hydrogen, and some energy loss in the exothermic reaction to burn the hydrogen is always going to be 1 equals 0. 0.9, 0. 0.8 rather than 1 equals 10. So it's not a source of energy. It's just a way to store energy from whether it's coming from you know, wind or solar. When you have surplus energy, you can store it in hydrogen. But then the real problem with hydrogen comes in is that our steel plants were built where the coal was or where the iron ore was in the Ruhr Valley in Germany, in Ohio, in the U.S., in Mongolia and China, wherever the coal, coal, uh, the coal sources were, you built it convenient to that. Where is the cheap wind or the cheap solar? In the U.S., it's in West Texas or in Nevada desert. In Europe, it's offshore, you know, uh, France, Holland, uh, Denmark, whatever, uh, or offshore UK, uh, and this and the steel plants are located far away. The fertilizer plants are located far away, so hydrogen liquefies at minus two hundred and thirty degrees Celsius. You can't transport in liquid form. It's extremely explosive. It makes natural gas look like child's play. So you have to build new pipelines, and you have to get all the NIMBY people on your side to build the pipelines, or you have to build new steel plants. Are you going to build a new steel plant on the coast of Holland? I doubt. Are you going to build a new steel plant in uh, you know, in uh, the desert in California? I doubt that the Californians will be as well coming. So the question is, how are we going to solve this hydrogen problem? And I haven't seen credible answers as to how we're going to solve it. They talk about repurposing natural gas pipelines, but where the gas is found is not necessarily where the cheap hydrogen will be. And so I think that, you know, hydrogen as promised fuel has a lot of shortcomings because it's not a fuel, it's a store of energy. It's like a battery. So we have to figure figure out, you know, there are new battery technologies people are working on. Maybe it's a sodium battery, maybe, maybe it's a sulfur battery. There's a lot of different, uh, you know, uh, molten salt. There are different solutions that people are working on. Maybe some of those will be will help us and maybe hydrogen will be part of the solution, but it is certainly no panacea. And electric cars are no panacea without thinking about all the other things. So these two are, you know, are false dawns if we think of them as a solution. If we think of them as part of the kind of mix of, you know, storage, then maybe it works. That's really interesting. Arvid Sanger, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. Thank you. Enjoy it.